Welcome to Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Mohamed Ismail. I'm a cloud accounting expert and a business advisor to dental and medical professionals. My firm, Shift Accounting, has helped our clients reach their financial goals. We are absolutely passionate about the dental industry, so we created the Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast, provide you with valuable resources and help you grow your dental practice. I interview experts in the industry, extract all the wonderful knowledge they have, and give it to you, our wonderful listeners. Hello, podcast listeners. I am super excited to have David Harris on the show today. If you're living under a rock and don't know who David Harris is, he's the CEO of Prosperi Dental, the world's largest dental embezzlement investigation firm. David is certified fraud examiner, financial forensics, private investigator, and a CPA. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mohammed. So great to be here with you. David, how long have you been in the business of embezzlement busting? I hate to admit this, but it's uh, closing in on 31 years. Wow, 31 years. So David, tell me this. What was the dumbest embezzlement scheme you have encountered? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen a lot of them, Mohammed. The, the one that comes to mind is a call I got a few years ago from a gentleman who said, I, I'm an orthodontist and I practice with another orthodontist. And the two of us have this arrangement where when patients come in and pay in cash, we just put it in our pockets and we don't tell the IRS, obviously, in in, an American situation. (laughs) But the reason I'm calling you, David, is that I think my partner is stealing more than I am. (laughs) So things kind of started from there. We did the investigation, and as it turns out, this guy was right. His partner was, in, in a sort of obtuse way, embezzling from him. It was certainly one of the most artistically written reports we've ever done because we had to skate around this big elephant in the room called tax evasion. <laughs> so, you know, you almost have a, two problems to deal with, you know, the partners and then CRA, eh? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that was one of the, the stupider ones. And, you know, these guys had a very good practice. They were making all kinds of money and why anybody would jeopardize that by, you know, taking not a lot of money and and putting in their pockets just totally escapes me. (laughs) Well, I I guess, you know, nowadays practices are are taking less and less cash. I mean, there's definitely, you know, cash is still out there, but I'm sure now maybe the embezzlements became more sophisticated, eh? (laughs) When I started 31 years ago, almost, you're exactly right. What people stole in those days was cash. Right. And cash is still the first choice of every thief. It's the easiest thing to convert into the, the stuff they want to buy with what they steal. But you're absolutely right. Cash is not the dominant form of stealing anymore. Now, more thieves take checks and they've found a way to cash them or they've found a way to intercept credit card payments or even electronic deposits to the doctor's account are stealable if somebody goes at it the right way. Interesting, interesting. Let's uh, kind of get to the current situation. So obviously, you know, many dentists were busy just preserving their business, you know, whether it's managing the staff, laying off staff, figuring out what to do during COVID. So now practices are coming back to open. Was there any lessons learned from covid when it comes to embezzlement risk? Certainly. People steal for two reasons. And I refer to them as need and greed or desperation and dishonest, whichever way you want to categorize them. There are some people who steal because they feel like society hasn't properly rewarded them for their huge talents. And these people tend to look at the doctor they work for as being basically a high-functioning moron with good hands. And in in the thief's mind, the only reason that the doctor's successful is because the thief keeps the doctor's chair full and then collects money from patients when they get out of that chair. Hmm. And they they sort of construct this fantasy where really they should be the equal partner of the doctor. Just without the education and the hard work. Yeah, they they, they sort of skip over some of the steps, but you know, they, they, they construct this partnership and they're really stealing to get their share. And then we have the other group who I call the needy thieves. 
and these people have something going on in their life that has upset their family finances and there's more money going out of their household each month than what's coming in. So, you know, when that's your situation, you tighten your belt a bit, you borrow all you can from friends, you max out your credit cards and your line of credit at the bank if you have one. And once all that's done, now you become desperate. Hmm. And desperate thieves are kind of two months behind on the mortgage and they're about to lose their house and they're stealing to sort of defend the basics of their lifestyle. Right. So, so your anticipation, I guess, or expectation is we will see more of this after this kind of like, you know, let's call it a financial crisis. We absolutely will. There's a massive displacement going on in the economy right now. Um, there are lots and lots of businesses that close through COVID that probably won't reopen. And I'll give you an example where I live, the restaurants have all closed and next week they're going to be allowed to reopen, but on a very limited basis. And some restaurants were kind of scraping by before, and they're certainly not going to make it now. So the, the head of the local restaurant association here said he thinks that about 25% of the restaurants that closed will not reopen. Wow. So all of a sudden you have all those people who are unemployed. Some of them probably have spouses who work in dental practices. Those couples are going to go from being a two-income family to a single-income family. And will that cause financial stress? Absolutely, it will. Let's be clear that not everybody who's under financial stress steals. You know, sometimes people work it out in other ways. Sometimes people declare bankruptcy or they, they find some other way to make their obligations manageable. But there's going to be some percentage of those people who see stealing as their best option. Right, right. So we haven't seen the extent of the, the, the seismic shift in the economy yet. The only thing I'll say in your case is, I think you're in Alberta and that, it, it's something that Albertans are kind of used to more than the rest of the country. But for the rest of us, things are going to change a lot. Right. And if, if somebody works in a dental practice and they have a spouse who's displaced or a spouse who's a business owner where suddenly the business is far less profitable, it's going to create the pressure that sometimes turns to embezzlement. So are there any new risks do you see that dentists should consider that are different than pre-COVID? I don't think the risk is new. The people to whom it applies may be. Gotcha. In other words, we have people who probably previously were financially stable who suddenly are not. Right. So, David, let's go back to the basics. Why is embezzlement so hard to detect? It's hard to detect because it's like playing poker with somebody and your cards are face up and their cards are hidden. Hmm. So they know exactly what's in your hand. The strategies that dentists use to protect their money are totally visible to their employees. Interesting. Interesting. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a one-sided game. It, it, it is a very unequal battle. And I have a lot of dentists who, when they realize they're embezzlement victims, or they strongly suspect that they are, they call me and the first thing they want to do is blame themselves. You know, if only I had done A, B or C, this wouldn't have happened. And I have to tell them, you know, this, this was a battle you were destined to lose. And let's face it, to become a dentist, you have to be a pretty smart person and then you have to undertake a, a, a challenging process to get into and then out of dental school and then start a practice. So we're not talking about stupid people. Absolutely not, yeah. However, their focus is elsewhere. They need to delegate in order to be able to function at a high clinical level. And sometimes they probably struggle with the difference between delegation and abdication. Delegation meaning I give you a job to do, but you are accountable to me for doing it. And abdication being I give you a job to do and I don't ever want to hear about it again. Right, right. So a, a, a lot of factors. The other thing I will say about most dentists is that their familiarity with practice management software and their practices is shockingly low. And, and and I'll I'll add to that. It's 
it's also complicated. You know, these softwares are just not easy software to deal with. <laughs> you, you, you know, I'm, I'm an accountant. Uh, we work with a lot of softwares, you know, uh, and, and, and sometimes, you know, we struggle to read the, the, the data, <laughs> right? I, I won't disagree. However, what I tell a lot of dentists is that that software is more important to your financial well-being than your handpiece is. And yet, you know that handpiece like it's your child. And when I talk to you about practice management software, you go cross-eyed. So that, that creates a vulnerability because the, the, the people who are in a position to steal from you happen to know far more about how to do it and how to cover it up than you do. So what, you know, obviously embezzlement risk is, is a risk that, in my opinion, cannot be eliminated, you know, could be mitigated. So it all starts with, you know, hiring, you know, the right people uh, in your practice, right? And, 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 I, and I think, you know, now post-COVID, should the hiring be different? It absolutely should. And it was broken before in general, and it's still broken. Dentistry has allowed itself to get out of step with how the rest of the world hires. And to put a point on it, I can't get a job at Canada Post delivering the junk that people buy on Amazon without a drug test. And yet I can work in virtually any dental practice in Canada without one. And the big difference between Canada Post and, and a dental practice, other than the fact that Canada Post loses a lot of money each year, <laughs> is that they don't have prescription pads in each of their delivery vehicles. So dentists tend to hire based on an interview and maybe a very cursory background check. You know, if you talk to any dentist, they'll say, well, I mean, I, I, I just need, uh, number one, I don't have the time. Number yeah. two, I only have one applicant that showed up in the door. So I, I really don't have the luxury of uh, picking and choosing. And you're absolutely right. That's, that's been a problem in a lot of places over the past four or five years. And again, Alberta's a, a little bit different because it's so resource-based. But in most of the country, the, you know, the unemployment rate has been very low. And you're absolutely right. People have, have had relatively few to choose from. I don't think that changes the need to understand who you're hiring, but I, I also understand how people see that it's a bit pointless when, as you say, they get one applicant for a job anyway. That's about to change. And when we talk about the displacement in the economy that I mentioned a few minutes ago, there are going to be lots of good people suddenly available. Right. And the unemployment rate has shot up and it's probably not going to correct itself anytime soon. And I talked about restaurants that, that aren't going to reopen. I'll say the same thing about dental practices. You know, as much as we hate to think about this, there are going to be some dental practices that don't reopen post-COVID. And it's probably going to come at both ends of the, the spectrum. In other words, I've, I've heard from several dentists who are in their 60s, look, I just can't be bothered with making the modifications that my provincial governing body is going to want me to make to my physical premise and also dealing with, you know, all of the changes in practice style that I'm going to have to make in order to function in the COVID world. You know, I'm financially secure. I can't be bothered. At the same time, I would hate to be the dentist who graduated in 2019 and borrowed $750,000 to buy a practice right now. Absolutely. So suddenly there are going to be more people available. And that's when we need to say, I've got to be a little more choosy. Most of your audience will be shocked to hear, Mohammed, that one in 10 adults in Canada has a criminal record. Wow. So we need to get back in step with how the rest of the world hires. And that means doing a criminal records check, checking on somebody's credit history and deciding whether bad credit poses a risk or not speaking with all their former employers over the last five years because that is hands down the best information available as to how somebody's going to be as your employee so your recommendation 
would be to really screen you know the person for a drug test possibly a credit check how, how do you go about it you know when 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 this is very foreign you know in the industry like you, you know give me an example how, how how would you go about something like this i mean drug testing is easy any decent sized city has a lab that does it oh first of all what i should mention is that this is not a situation where you play what I what I call an employment screening survivor. In other words, if you if if you get to let's say three candidates who make it to the interview stage, it's not like you drug test all of them, right, right, and hire the one who has the least toxicity in their blood screen. In their <laughs> blood screen. It's really a case where you need to get down to your your chosen candidate and then find out if they really are who they say they are. Got you. So as far as drug test goes. There's a, there's a lab in any decent sized city that will do this. So normally the employee is, or the prospective employee is required to, you know, you give them a, a, a time window, which needs to be fairly short, in which they, they make an appointment and they go to the lab. And the lab will, will take typically blood and urine and, and you know, can, can perform the tox screen on those within normally 24 or 48 hours. Interesting. Criminal records check is done through your local police department, they have a consent form that the applicant will be required to sign. Usually there's a, there's a small fee and it's typically around $25 or $50 that, that the police department will charge for that. And that typically takes a few days as well. Verifying former speaking with former employers is the easiest. And the only hint that I will give your audience is when you're doing this, do not phone any phone number that an applicant gives you. So if, if they say that they worked for Dr. Mark Smith in Red Deer, Alberta, Google is really cheap to use. <laughs> Go to your online search engine, find Dr. Smith's website, call the number that's listed online, and then you know you're speaking with Dr. Smith. If you call a number that an applicant gives you, it might be a disposable cell phone that their uncle is using and pretending to be Dr. Smith. Interesting, David. One one of the challenge that I that I hear is people, you know, for example, in a tighter market, people are just leaving a job for a better, you know, job in terms of pay or or environment, you know. But usually, they don't want to, you know, tip their current employee or employer that they're leaving, right? So how how do you deal with a scenario like this? The first thing you need to do is communicate what your process is. Right. So, you know, before somebody is sitting in front of you for an interview, they should know what your due diligence process consists of. And the idea here, Mohammed, is to separate unsuitable applicants at the earliest possible stage of the process. So if, you know, if applicants know at the point they're applying that you do a drug test, some of them won't apply. Right. Perfect. You know, we just, we just eliminated the need to screen them out later for the people who come to you and say, please don't contact my current employer because she doesn't know I'm leaving. It's very simple. What you say to them is I understand that completely. And I would certainly not want to get you in jeopardy with your current employer. However, I'm going to tell you that we don't hire anybody without having that conversation, but we understand the sensitivity of your position and I'm happy to push that to last. In other words, we'll complete everything else first. If we're happy, we'll make you a written conditional offer of employment. And if you're, if you're prepared to accept it, at that point, you're going to have to tell your current employer that you're leaving and it should be okay for us to have the conversation. Right, right. Uh, and what that does is if somebody's playing games with you, what you have just told them is at the end of their path is a brick wall. And they're just going to abandon the hiring process. I mean, there's no way they're going to go through the, the drug screening, for example, knowing that you're insistent on talking to their current employer and knowing that their current employer is going to say rotten things about you. Right, right. So, you know, part of the exercise is to have the process in place. And the other part is to make it, make it overt so that when somebody applies, they know exactly what you're going to do. And as I say, that will that will self-select out some people who uh, really shouldn't be in your pipeline. I, I like that. I, I I like that. So number one, come up with a comprehensive, 
interview process? I mean, a, a lot of people obviously focus on the skill set and availability, right? So, we, you know, obviously that's that's already given, but they're not thinking about, you know, the, the things that you just mentioned. So that should be part of the interview and onboarding process, right? I understand that this is a big ask for a dentist and that it's already challenging to find somebody with the right skills and the right personality, which is even more important because the, the skills are learnable. The personality is something you're kind of stuck with. It's a big request to ask somebody to, first of all, find that stuff. And then secondly, to have this mental overlay of the possibility that what this person's telling me isn't true. About 50 to 60% of resumes contain some amount of embellishment or falsehood. And you know what every dentist needs to do at, at various points in the hiring process is to step back a bit and to say, you know, what if what I'm being told isn't completely accurate? Another thing that, that most dentists don't think of is when I'm doing an interview with somebody, so they're sitting right there in front of me, or maybe these days we're doing a Zoom interview because of COVID. But what I want to say to them is, I just need to check your identification. So could you please give me a picture ID and a secondary piece of ID, you know, which could be a credit card or a gym membership or a you know university student card or whatever. But I want a driver's license and a secondary piece of ID. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a small ask, but I don't think a lot of people do this. Well, if, if I have a background that I'm trying to hide, one of the easiest ways to do it is to use somebody else's identity. And if you're a little bit loose about checking that stuff, then I'll get away with it. So if I have a criminal record, but my brother doesn't, all I have to do is show up and, and pretend to be my brother and my chance of getting the job goes way up. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, you know, the hiring process need to be more there should be more rigor on the hiring process, right? Yes. So now let's say, you know, you hired, you know, the, the perfect employee, okay? What other things, for example, the dentist should be looking at? The first thing I'll say, and I'll, I'm going to tie this back to an earlier comment when I, when I talked about the undereducation that most dentists have concerning their practice management software. When you are reviewing your day and reviewing your month, and let's be clear that you need to do both, the reports you are looking at should be ones that you printed yourself. In other words, as soon as you allow somebody else to hand reports to you, you create the potential that those reports don't present the the full accurate picture of your practice. Right. So, doctor, I know that some of you are hoping that you could make it through your entire career without ever learning the first thing about your practice management software. It's time to rethink that. And you don't necessarily need to know how to do everything that your staff do, but at a minimum, you need to be able to know how to check a specific patient's account and see the activity in it and to print reports. So what, what, what reports are we looking at? Like, What information are we looking at? At the end of the day, you probably really just need to look at one. And it has different names in different software. So I, I, I think it's better if I talk about these in, in generic terms. Perfect. But almost every, well, every software has something that's sometimes called a day sheet or a day end report or a practice summary or something in one software I think of, it's called a production report. What this report shows is all the activity that was posted today. So fees, adjustments, and payments for every provider in your practice. So you need to look at your own work and you also need to look at what your hygienist did and what your associate did and pay attention to to particularly anything that was deleted or anything that was modified during the day. And and this is a good practice just to understand if the billing was correct, let alone embezzlement. Absolutely. And let's face it, the, the Canadian Dental Association codes that are used in dental practices are very close to each other, and it's really easy to code a three-surface filling as a one-surface. Right, right. And, you know, the difference is probably a couple of hundred dollars. So, yes, you will you will catch mistakes, and it's also one of your best windows to spot suspicious transactions. Do you recommend this for every provider or just the owner of the practice to kind of look at this? I think two things have to happen there. 
every provider should get their own report and should review it. So if I'm a hygienist, I need to review and sign off on my own report. In other words, for my activities today, hmm. the practice owner needs to look at the global report. So of course they're interested in their own production, but they also need to know, for example, our, our patients who are in for hygiene appointments, paying their copayments. Right. And the only way to do that is to look at the global practice report. So that's a, that's a day end. Okay. The mistake that a lot of practitioners make is they're convinced that if they look at every day end and make sure that it's right, that nothing can possibly happen to them. And what I have to tell them is, okay, but you only practice 18 days a month. That leaves about 12 days when something could be posted to your accounts and you'll never notice it because you're not looking at those days. Interesting. So give me, give me an example of wh where would be the gap in the days that well, nobody's working? Your, your practice is closed, in, is closed on Saturdays, but somebody comes in on Saturday and posts a bunch of stuff that they shouldn't. And you never realize it because you're only looking at day-end reports for the days when you are physically in the practice. Right. So what you need to look at is a month-end report. The other, the other place, Mohammed, where people get this wrong is they, they tie out their practice management software against their, their merchant terminal. So for the audience, that's the little machine in the practice that takes credit card payments. So they reconcile the daily tape from that machine against the practice management software, which is flawed because again, somebody can come in on a Saturday or a Sunday and put some transactions through that machine that you'll be unaware of. Right. Right. So we need to look at day ends and that's important. And it's, it's also important to do this when it's fresh. In other words, you know, if, if, uh, your practice runs on Thursdays, but is closed on Fridays, if, if the Thursday report sits there, if you don't look at a Thursday night before you go home, if you wait until Monday morning or Monday afternoon to look at it, it's almost meaningless. I mean, your memory of what happened Thursday by, by 5 PM Monday is pretty nebulous. <laughs> right. But where I'm going with this is the second thing you need to look at is the month end version of that report. And you have a couple of questions here. The first one is, do the day, if I add up all the day ends, do they equal the month end totals? And if the answer to that is no, then there was some, some extracurricular posting that happened. Right. We actually have a spreadsheet, and, and if, if any of your audience want it, all they have to do is email me, and I'll be happy to send it to them. We have a spreadsheet that does all the math for you. So all you have to do in this is enter the daily totals, which takes a couple of minutes, and then it will produce monthly totals for you that you can compare to your monthly report. Perfect. Um, I'll also mention a couple of other reports that I think people should look at on a monthly basis. And again, I'm, I'm giving generic software names your, your reports may be called something slightly different, but what I'm telling you should be enough to let you see what's going on. The first one I want you to look at is called an adjustments report, and it will capture all the adjustments for the month and put them in a single report. And, and now why is this important? Because uh, adjustment is another word for money flying out of your hands and going somewhere. Right. What an adjustment is in a practice is money that was originally billed and is now being removed from a patient's account balance. So that's money that will never be paid. And in some cases, adjustments are for legitimate reasons. But doctor, you, you should know about every adjustment that's in your practice. You should understand why it's there and be able to decide if it's legitimate. Right. The two others that I want you to look at are modified transactions and deleted transactions. And those are both high risk kinds of things. So it's, it's not that every one of those means that somebody's stealing from you, but when there is a deletion, we need to understand why and decide whether it's it's a problem or not. So that's your audit trail report at the end of the month, just to make sure that. No, these are these are kind of subsets of the audit report. You you could look theoretically, you can look at an audit trail. Okay. The problem with the audit trail is volume. So for the for the benefit of the audience, what what an audit trail does in your practice management software is it captures every single line item. So when a, when a patient's in for a hygiene visit, that takes up one hygiene visit, that takes up about a quarter of a page in your audit trail. 
because you have profi fluoride scaling recall exam patient payment insurance payment and possibly a few other things i mean oral hygiene instruction if it happens and and, and so on so that one single hygiene visit occupies about a quarter of a page if you're a one dentist one hygienist practice and you printed out your audit trail for a year it's probably about six thousand pages Wow. So looking for something in there is kind of like looking for the key that you lost on the golf course. <laughs> you know, it's it. I, I, I won't say don't do it, but the deleted transactions, modified transactions and adjustments report kind of capture the high risk end of the audit trail. And I think in general, you're better looking at those than taking this great big report and looking for a needle in the haystack. Right. Right. So what, uh, you know, let, let's talk about the reconciliation process because, yeah. you know, the, the way the insurance pay is very different on how the, you know, payments are entered into the system. Obviously, there's timing difference, right? You know, what are the best practices when it comes to, you know, reconciling the practice management software with the bank? To me, there are three things that need to be reconciled each month. And they all start with practice management software. Well, I guess maybe two things here in Canada. Sorry, I was, I, most of, I, I'm Canadian, but most of our work is in the U.S. And I, I just kind of mentally drifted there for a minute. <laughs> in Canada, there are really two reconciliations that need to happen each month. The bank needs to be reconciled against practice management software. In other words, whatever was paid by cash or check or credit card needs to show up in the bank account. Right. And as you mentioned, Mohammed, there are timing differences so that you kind of see these in two directions. The first is electronic funds deposits to a doctor's account because those typically arrive in the, in the bank account a day or two before the practice gets that thing called an EOB, an explanation of benefits that, that sort of shows what that check is for. Right. And at the other end, you have credit card deposits. When a patient pays you by credit card today, it, it shows up in your practice management software today, but typically won't hit your bank account for a couple of days. So, you know, the, the, the first thing I'll say is that the concept of daily balancing has become a little more challenging because of these timing differences. Right. And it's really impossible at the end of today to know if you actually balanced today. But as you look back after the end of the month, it's much the, the timing differences have all resolved themselves and it's much easier to do that. So on a monthly basis, you need to reconcile bank against practice management software and also the bank against your merchant account, which is the, the facility you have for incoming credit card payments. Now, doctors, here's the good news. I'm pretty sure most of you didn't go to dental school because you really wanted to be an accountant and just couldn't get into the program. Um, however, there are people like Mohammed and his firm out there who are really good at that stuff. And my suggestion to you is this is something that is perfect to outsource. And I, I mean outsource and not delegate. In other words, this can't be something that your office manager does because that's like handing the fox the keys to the hen house. This needs to go out to an external bookkeeper or your CPA firm, or if you have a spouse who has a little bit of talent in this area and is prepared to help you out, then, then the spouse, but it cannot be somebody in-house. So, so let's uh, you know, kind of drill a little bit deeper in, in the reconciliation again piece because you know, one of the, you know, it is, it is absolutely the timing difference makes it, you know, challenging, yeah. you know, but the one thing also I see that if people don't enter payments, you know, EOBs in their patient management system in a timely basis, it also creates, you know, a bigger problem, right? So, you know, from what we see is when offices are on top of entering payments, you know, that reconciliation process is becomes easier, Right. Because now, you know, you're not seeing, you know, weeks difference between the, the payments in the bank account and the payments shows up in, in, in the practice management software. Right. Also closing. Right. People who don't enter payments, you know, in a timely manner, they tend to 
don't close their month end in, in, on time. That's a really good point. And maybe we'll give the audience a little bit of explanation of the significance of this. So in most practice management software, there's this concept called closing the month. And what happens when you close a month in the software is that after that's done, you can no longer post transactions to that month. So I, I'm speaking with Mohammed on uh, near the end of May. In a couple of days, what, what most practices should be doing is closing that month of May in their software. And that locks May so that now you cannot do what's called a backdated transaction where something happens in June, but it's actually posted in May. Your software should absolutely be closed every month. And, and doctors listening, this is something you need to check, not by asking somebody, but by going to your software and seeing if it's actually closed. And if you're not sure how to do that, every software has a as a group of trainers who would love to show you how to do that. So you need to check the software personally and see if it's closed. And Mohammed is absolutely right. When you have practices where front desk staff are sloppy and inattentive to detail, or if they're stealing, not closing the month is, is something that we, we almost expect to see. Because it, it, it just gives people the ability to go back in periods and, 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 and and uh, and it just makes the search for anything becomes in a in a bigger period where if everything is is reconciled and closed, you would hope that there is no, nobody can go back to that period and 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 play around with it. Yeah, it makes it possible to rewrite history. Right, right, and that's not a good thing. Right. So, so you know, we've kind of talked about you know the day end process. Uh, high-level month-end process, the importance of, you know, reconciliation and making sure that, you know, whatever the practice, you know, management software shows as payment received actually make it to the bank account. What, uh, you know, if we think about risk, okay, are, are there are there any payments that are riskier than others? For example, uh, you know, obviously cash is, is, is an easy example, so we're going to skip that. You know, is is a practice better off having uh, electronic insurance payments rather than checks, for example, or credit card transactions are better than electronic deposits, or, or the risk is equal? I think the risk is equal. The, the The risk of theft really is derived from the possibility that somebody who works for you wakes up one morning and decides to be dishonest. And that has very little to do with the systems in your practice. The question then is, can they, given that they, they woke up that morning and decided to be dishonest, can they then find a way to monetize that dishonesty? And what I'll say without, without getting into a whole lot of detail is that any form of incoming wealth to a practice can be adulterated. So patient payments, insurance payments uh, received by check, insurance payments received by electronic funds transfer, any of those things can be sold. And somebody just has to sit there for a little while and think about it and probably do some internet research because there's unfortunately a, a fair amount of commentary out there on how to do it. Wow. And, and the banking system has become much more automated than it once was. And, and one thing that surprises a lot of people is that I say that every technological innovation opens some doors to embezzlers. D David, this is very depressing. <laughs> Sorry about that. I should, have, I should have warned you to take a couple of Ativan before the call started. <laughs> so, okay, so, so now we established that, you know, the risk is almost equal, y y you know, Obviously, you know, there's preference. So, you know, some people say, you know what, I, I, li I like to see a check. I personally don't, you know, if the money is going from the insurance company to your bank directly, uh, you know, again, it, it's just it's it just a preference. Credit card payments and all that transactions. Yeah, I mean, everybody can, you know, find a loophole to, to all of these. What are the signs, you know, that dentists should be, at least aware of to start thinking, you know what, there's something not, you know, not adding up here 
and I should investigate or look into it further? There are lots of them, and I'll break them into two categories. There are financial signs, like, you know, my bank deposit doesn't balance to what my software says it should be. Or, you know, the amount of money that my software says is going into my bank account each month is not the amount that is actually going into my bank account each month. You know, there are, there are those kinds of signs, of course. What's more detectable and, and probably closer to what emotionally how, how dentists approach their, their worlds are the behavioral manifestations. And there are a lot of different things here. For example, Mohammed, a lot of thieves are reluctant to take vacation because keeping their, their embezzlement scheme going and keeping it undetectable to their, their doctor so it's not because they, they're just working hard? Well, but it, it, it involves controlling the, how information flows to the doctor. Right. What will happen sometimes when somebody's stealing is patients will start to phone and inquire or complain about their bills. And mm-hmm. as long as the thief is the person on the other end of the phone, they will deal with this and prevent it from escalating to the doctor. But when that person's on vacation, they've lost all ability to do this. So they'll come up with lots of excuses why they don't need vacation. And unfortunately, a lot of dentists tend to misinterpret this as being, you know, somebody who's who's loyal as a puppy dog. Right. And, and, and that isn't the case. The hmm. um, other thing that, that comes out over and over again with embezzlers is territoriality. So this is the person who is possessive about their duties. You know, they don't want to delegate any part of what they're doing, even if it looks like they're run off their feet. They don't want to cross train anybody else to do any part of what they're doing. And this is the person often who will get upset if somebody sits in their chair at their desk or touches their computer. You know, there's really a, a, a possessiveness about them. But you know, you know, Dave, David is is unfortunately that this scenario specifically, you know, I personally see it in in many offices, right? And 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 the comments that I always hear is like, well, you know what? I don't want anybody to screw up my AR. I don't want anybody to screw up, you know, my balancing of things. I don't want everybody to screw up, you know, the ledger for me, right? Yep. How how do you, you know, how, how do you? handle something like this as a dentist you know that listening to this podcast and say okay you know what you know now we're going to go back you know to the offices we want to implement you know new policies and systems how do you recommend changing old habits well let's talk about the vulnerability that creates and embezzlement is one vulnerability the other vulnerability that that kind of employee creates for you is that you know no employment relationship is forever so that person eventually is going to retire, move away, possibly get sick, take another job, any of those things. And when they do, a big chunk of your institutional knowledge is going to vanish with them. So the vulnerability you have when somebody says that to you is far deeper than embezzlement. It is that you have a staff member that you just can't function without. So that's where you have to emphasize the cross-training. You know, it's really important, Sally that somebody else in here know how to do that posting of payments. So you're really good at it. And what I need you to do is teach Mark how to do it. So let's, let's think in broader terms than simply embezzlement about that problem. But you have to insist on cross-training. Uh, you have to enforce it because otherwise, like I say, you're, you're in that situation. And I've, I've had many dentists say to me, you know, the problem is if I fire that person, even though they're stealing, we're going to be in such a mess because nobody else here, including me, knows how to do what they do. So that's where documentation comes in. You know, it's where having a, a procedures manual that that lays out how, for example, how a payment is taken or how, you know, how the day end is reconciled. It's it's getting the stuff on paper and it's it's also making sure that you have multiple employees who can who can do that stuff. Absolutely. So when it comes to you know the signs, there are obviously could be financial signs or behavioral signs. Now, what should the dentist do if they suspect there's a fraud? What, what, what should they do? Fire the person and take it upon themselves, call the police? None of the above. 
All right. I'm glad I'm talking to you, David. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing that they, well, the, the, yes, the, the firing is something they need to decide about. And, you know, most times when, when people suspect they're at a point where firing could cost them some money. In other words, in, in Canada, we have two ways to fire people. We can fire them for what's called just cause, which is pretty narrowly defined, or we can fire people for some other reason. If you don't have just cause and you let somebody go, then you have an obligation, and that obligation is to either give them reasonable notice or to pay them in lieu of that notice. And that can be pretty extensive. So if you have an employee who's been with you for 15 years and you fire them and it's not a termination for cause, you might have to pay them somewhere between six months and a year's salary as, as a severance. So it's not something we do lightly. And one thing that a doctor has to weigh is, is the relative risk of keeping somebody who they think is stealing around for another six or eight weeks while an investigation happens versus firing them now and, and opening their wallet. So there are, there are a lot of cases where this person is not immediately fired. Interesting. The other part, though, is that when you are in a situation where you have a suspected employee working for you, what you cannot do is let them know that they're, in fact, a suspect. Right. You want to tip them off and so they yeah. change their behavior. Well, uh, yeah, change of behavior is the least of your problems. The far bigger problem is if, if I've been stealing from you and I think I'm about to get caught and I think that getting caught will result in my going to jail, you know, the list of things that I won't do to stop that all from happening is pretty short. Interesting. I got a call about 10 years ago from a dentist and he suspected one of his staff and we talked for about half an hour. And at the end of that conversation, he decided that he could save some money if he investigated this himself. I don't know exactly what he did next. I, I think probably what he did is he went to the suspect and he asked her for a whole bunch of reports that he'd never asked for before. And then he went in his private office and shut the door and probably called a CPA and, you know, had, had a discussion. Anyway, whatever he did, she realized that she was going to get caught. So her response was to come back that night with a can of gasoline and burn down the practice. Wow. So we don't want your clients or your audience to use themselves as guinea pigs in a sociology experiment. Right, right. So let's be careful. Calling the police is a really bad idea. Now, why, why is that? It, it's not that it will never be a good idea. It's just premature. This kind of crime is very technical. And there is not a single police department in Canada that has the ability to properly investigate this crime. So when you call them, what happens is they send typically two large patrolmen of either gender to your practice with big squawking radios. And, you know, if the, uh, if, if the suspect hasn't realized that, that, the balloon is about to go up. They certainly realize it when, when those people come in. And then they kind of blunder around for a month, and then they realize that, you know, this is just beyond us, and then they just kind of let it go dormant. The way to use the police properly is after our work is done and you have the report in your hand, to give it to them. Interesting. And in that case, you know, we've, we've performed what I call a primary investigation, and what the police will do is what I label a secondary investigation, which means they'll do some things that we can't. Like, for example, get what's called a production order on the suspect's bank account. And they can compel the suspect to an interview. Now, the suspect can exercise their constitutional rights, you know, to have their lawyer present and to refuse to answer certain questions and things like that. But the, when the police invite you in for questioning, you can't easily say no. Right. So... Once, once they know from us what happened inside the practice management software, they can take it and run with it from there. But, you know, to, to phone the police and, and simply say, I think somebody has embezzled from me is a very pointless exercise. It would be like calling the police on a Friday night and saying, I think somebody stole my car. And the police say to you, well, that's fine, Mohammed. What's the make and model? And you say, well, I think it's a Mercedes, but, you know, maybe it's a Ford. And they say to you, okay, well, what color is it? And you say, I don't know, it's some dark color. What they're <laughs> going to say to you is, all right, here's what I want you to do. Take a taxi home, 
sober up. And in the morning, if you still can't find your car, call us back. Right. And that's that's just about exactly how that conversation will go. Interesting, interesting. Um, but but you know, people people think that it's the job of the police to tell the victim what was stolen, and it's not. You have to tell the police that, and once you do, they'll make sure the law gets applied. Right. I mean, it, it's definitely a very a complex I- investigation. It's not easy, right? And, and you know, no, it's uh, not. I mean, our you know the the we we have nineteen investigators in total. They all come from dental backgrounds. So about half of them used to be dentists. The other half typically come from some other corner of dentistry. I mean, they were office managers or software trainers or or consultants. But, you know, they've all spent on average 10 to 15 years in, in the dental field before they come to us. And then it takes another typically year and a half for them to get fully proficient at what we do. Wow, that's amazing. David, that was very informative. Lots of information here. If someone wants to reach out to you, ask questions or, or would like to have, you know, the sheet that you mentioned, what is the best way to reach out to you? Well, they can do it in a couple of ways. Our, our website is www.dentalembezzlement.com. And the only real trick there is to spell embezzlement correctly. But if, if you're not sure, Google will help you. We'll have all this in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Even better. Our toll-free number is 888-398-2327. Or they can always email me. And my personal email is david at the same domain dentalembezzlement.com. Awesome. Again, David, I, I really appreciate your time here. This was, as I said, very informative, lots of information, a little bit depressing, but this information is, is, a, is a must know for, for all the dentists. It definitely is. Roughly 90% of dentists will get embezzled sooner or later. Here you have it. <laughs> Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. I would like to thank our corporate partner, Zero, a beautiful accounting software. If you'd like to know more information or just want to say hi, visit our website, Shift Accounting. That is shiftacct.com or you can reach me directly at mohamed, M-O-H-A-M-E-D, at shiftacct.com.